Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. Today, we're going to be talking about the Hagia Sophia and how it's being turned into a mosque again. Yeah, we're going to look at the recent unfortunate decision from the Turkish courts that allows the Hagia Sophia to be turned back into a mosque. We're going to look at the history of the Hagia Sophia from its construction to its importance in world events and the fall of the Hagia Sophia to the Turkish forces. As Pope Francis recently expressed the sentiments of sadness, uh, this is certainly a sad day. And, you know, reflecting on the beautiful history of Hagia, Hagia Sophia, uh, we have a great friend with us again, Steve. And uh, it's, I think it's time to really talk deeply about the, the pains of what this means. Welcome back. Uh, really excited about this episode. It's definitely something that needs to be covered, especially recently with, with the news and everything about it turning into a mosque. Uh, we've got Steve Weidenkopf with us. Thanks again, Steve, for being here. Steve is a historian, a church historian, uh, and a professor at um, Christendom College in Virginia. Steve, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Ryan, Father. Good to see you guys again. Thanks for having me on the show. This yeah, is and we're, we're doing this again remotely and so you know just bear with the audio and the zoom calls for now but uh definitely a, a topic that we want to tackle today now this is steve's third appearance on the show which makes him the, the our most invited guest that we've ever had so uh really th- uh, steve we appreciate it because the uh the accuracy and the insight that you can give us into the, the historicity of the hagia sophia is a really important element to the story and really will show why it's such an important and momentous decision that came out of these the Turkish courts recently. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks once again for having me on the show. And always like, uh, always look forward to talking to, uh, to you three and, and uh, the topics we cover on the show. So it's very, very important, as you mentioned. So for a little, uh, I guess, context, um, the Hagia Sophia, it was recently announced out of the Turkish courts. Now, there's been kind of a, a movement there, a political, I guess, cause. In, in Turkey to have the Hagia Sophia turned back into a mosque. So essentially for the last hundred years, since 1935, the Hagia Sophia has been uh, operated as a museum. And President Erdogan of Turkey, one of his kind of causes that has maybe a, a, a populist thing among the more, um, I guess, more adherent uh, Muslims in Turkey, one of the things that he's doing, I guess, to appease them or to show the the nationalist prerogative of Turkey is to have that decision made at the, really at the founding of the nation of modern Turkey by Kemal Ataturk, um, having that overturned in the Turkish court systems. And that has happened. 
and it has been announced that the Hagia Sophia will be converted back into a mosque. And within really minutes of that, uh, of that decision, the Islamic call for prayer was given from the Hagia Sophia for the first time in almost 100 years. And this is a really distressing uh, decision on a lot of levels, both from the, the religious uh, sentiment and how that affects the, uh, the relations between both particularly Greek Orthodox, but Byzantine Catholics, Latin Catholics, and the Islamic world, and all of people of faith throughout the world, but also on a political level between Turkey and the countries that are uh, really out, having an outcry on this, um, is a pretty startling and unilateral decision that didn't take into account um, or even have any sort of dialogue with UNESCO because Hagia Sophia is a World Heritage Site. It didn't take into account any discussions with the Patriarch of Constantinople, uh, Bartholomew. It didn't take into account the strong feelings of Russia and the Patriarch of Moscow, who are a very massive regional power with Turkey. I mean, there's a lot to this decision, and it's a pretty bold and distressing decision. Father, uh, like you said, Pope Francis himself said he was deeply saddened by it, that his thoughts went across the sea to Istanbul or Constantinople and was saddened by it. And I think a lot of Christians around the world are feeling that very same thing right now. Yeah, I agree, Ryan. I mean, it's there's all kinds of ramp. I think you out, you outlined that very, very well. There are a lot of different layers of impact by this decision. There is obviously the religious impact to it. There's a historical impact to it. Uh, there's definitely a political aspect to it, and as well. So, you know, I'm not uh, schooled in, in modern Turkish politics, so I'm not certain. You know, we can't really, I can't really comment too much on that, other than the fact to say that. You know, Turkey is a member of NATO, just in case people you know, don't know that or our, our viewers might not be aware of that, but uh, and has aligned itself, at least in the near recent past, somewhat with the, the West. But over the last several years has been kind of aligning itself a little bit more towards the East and towards Russia. So this is really a surprising move politically, as you mentioned, how the Russians might take this uh, this particular action. But. From a religious perspective, to talk about that for a second, I know that that uh, you know when it was a museum. Maybe to highlight why it's so important to this decision is that when it was operated as a museum for almost the last hundred years, as you mentioned, there were you know there was an ability for Christians and and um, you know, Muslims to work somewhat together or to have a little bit more of a of a forum for any differences concerning you know the the building itself. Because as you mentioned, it's very very important to uh, Christians, uh, very important, especially to the Orthodox, but also has special um, resonance with, with Latin Christians. Um, and obviously is an important place for Muslims as well, at least since the middle of the 15th century. So uh, when Constantinople f fell, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on in the, in the um, time here. But so th this is, as you mentioned, I mean, it, it's very impactful on just a whole multitude of different levels. So it's it's really surprising. I mean, there've been calls for this over the last several years. So it's not um, necessarily something that's just out of the blue, but it is kind of odd that it that maybe happens now. And there's all kinds of, I'm sure, political ramifications associated with it. So. Yeah, and that's, uh, a, that's the thing that's concerning for me most is that there's so many political movements at work where, you know, the sacred is being defaced or torn down. And, you know, the sacred traditions 
of you know our Christian faith being lived out in such a pivotal location in the world, which is one of the greatest accomplishments in architecture in the history of the world, let alone the Byzantine Empire. Like it's an impressive building that was built to honor God. And and you know, clearly again, this is falling in line with the, you know, the statues of Saint Hunapara Sarah being torn down, the statue of Our Lady, the Blessed Virgin Mary in Boston being burnt just the other day. You know, there was a church in Ocala that just recently had a, a firebomb thrown into a guy ran down the, you know, one of the most beautiful churches in Florida. Um, so again, this is this is falling in a time that that's really it's a it's a hard blow to take right now. You know, and I don't think this is really outside the M.O. of President Erdogan. Uh, he was actually banned from running for political office um, and spent time in, in jail in the 90s for inciting religious violence. Now, Turkey's constitution, after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, uh, they have a specifically enshrined in their constitution a, that they are a secular state. And there is all kinds of laws to preserve that, that secular nature. And Erdogan actually found himself in jail for going across that by reading a poem that says that, you know, the domes are our shields and the minarets are our spears. And people are like, look, we are a secular nation and you're talking about religious extremist violence, essentially, or violence in the maybe more calling to mind the classical eras of conquest of Islam. I wouldn't say maybe modern extremist violence like you think, but more of, you know, calling back to Mehmet or, you know, one of the great uh, Islamic conquerors. But uh, this found him at odds with the Turkish political system, especially the older vanguard who was very uh, secular. But a lot of the, the rank and file people of Turkey, this resonated with that, that his kind of defense and his kind of, you know, muscular posturing towards a more, um, a more, I guess, um, overt, Islamic nature of Turkey. And he's a pretty um, controversial figure. I mean, there's a lot of Turkish people living in exile because of the nature of his rule and what has happened, uh, the changes that are happening in Turkey because of President Erdogan. Yeah. So it's clear you can see from, from this, this action, really, it kind of ties back to, um, you know, the conquest of Constantinople in 1453 by the Ottoman Turks. So, um, you know, what you just said there, Ryan, in terms of Erdogan and his political, religious type of sentiments, um, that, that obviously will resonate with that certain element in Turkish society, right? Because this was the city that, you know, Mehmed II focused on conquering in order to expand uh, the Ottoman Turkish Empire to and bring it to its height of conquest, really, back in the 15th century. And, you know, Islamic armies had battered the walls of Constantinople in the past before the 15th century and had within even 40 years, within a generation of, of Muhammad's death, actually, back in the 7th century. But had always been beaten back. Uh, and it was Mehmed II who was able to actually finally get into the city. And one of the first things he did when he, his army was able to get into the city and he conquered, he conquered it was to go to Hagia Sophia and to declare it a mosque. It was one of the first actions that he performed. So Erdogan doing this really is going to resonate with a lot of those more, we, we might say, more extremist or more adherent uh, Muslim um, citizens of Turkey. Yeah, I think it might call back to a time when they were great players on the world stage, when the Ottomans were a power that could easily contend for Europe, where Europeans were 
completely terrified of them. And you'll see this a lot where countries who have historical greatness, like Persia and Iran or Iraq or uh, countries who historically have been great world players who no longer play that same role in the modern geopolitical world, they will definitely call back to these times when they were great, when they were powerful. And there is probably no, the height of the power of the Ottomans was that conquest of Constantinople. And calling back to that is kind of a, a nationalist, uh, populist kind of flex on, <clears throat> hey, look, we are still those people. But that comes at the expense of the sentiments and the good common sense of people throughout the modern world, and particularly a thumb in the eye to the Orthodox, who at that conquest were completely, um, you know, it was the first thing that uh, Mehmet did when he got into Constantinople. But it wasn't the first day that Constantinople fell. Mehmet didn't go into the Hagia Sophia until three days afterwards, because Mehmet allowed when the city walls fell for three days of looting and destruction, where thousands upon thousands of Christians were killed. The Hagia Sophia was actually, there was hundreds of the, the old, the young, uh, women and children and the old who couldn't fight were barricaded inside the Hagia Sophia. And when the walls fell, they came in and they slaughtered all of them in the Hagia Sophia. You know, so <clears throat> it's, 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 uh, it's a pretty bold and tone deaf move, but it's definitely, you understand why he's doing it because he's trying to flex on the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So what when when Hagia Sophia it, it first fell it, during this particular amendment, particular guy under his guidance first. So for what eleven hundred years it was a Christian church. Wow. Yeah, that's a good point, right? To to go back to the beginnings of it. I mean, yeah. So I mean, the the origins of this church go all the way back um, to you know the fourth century, really, in terms of how it was brought about when Constantine, the emperor, who, uh, you know, had seen that great vision of the cross in the sky on his march down from uh, through Gaul to Rome to take on uh, Maxentius in battle for the sole emperorship of the Western Roman Empire back in the fourth century. Um, Constantine, after winning that battle, then was very favorable to the Christian faith and the Christian church. Uh, the Catholic Church eventually in the year 313, he legalized the Christian faith throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, and then eventually he does battle with, an, with a, his co-Eastern Emperor Licinius in the 320s, wins a battle. And then as he's finally now the sole emperor of the entire, uh, both halves of the, of the Roman Empire, West and East, Constantine makes a decision to create a new city, a new capital, a new Rome. And he founds it on this, the pre-existing city of Byzantium. Um, calls it New Rome. Later on, it's renamed Constantinople for him. And um, after his death, there's, you know, building, during his, his life, there's building, you know, the whole city is just, is enriched and built up into this great big capital city. Uh, and there's an initial church of holy wisdom, uh, Hagia Sophia, that was constructed around the year 360. Uh, eventually, that gets put, um, that, that original church is, is done away with, and then in uh, fast forward a couple centuries to the sixth century with the reign of Justinian the Great, and he builds this, the current edifice you see now, the great enlarged Hagia Sophia on the same site as that original church, and that church that Justinian built in the sixth century was the largest church in Christendom all the way until the 16th century with the creation of modern day, moder uh, the modern day Basilica of St. Peter's in Rome. 
Uh, it was the largest enclosed space, enclosed building in all of Christendom uh, for you know nearly a thousand years, you know, a little less than that. But uh, so it has it has huge importance, right? And outside of uh, the brief time of the 13th century during the Fourth Crusade, when Western knights were able to take control of the city and establish a, a Latin empire there, um, it's it's been under you know the control of of Eastern Christians, um, you know, from that time, from the time of Constantine all the way up until the middle of the 15th century. Yeah, it's it was the seat of the Patriarch of Constantinople. Uh, it was their their cathedral basilica um it was like you said it was for about 60 years from 1203 to 1261 did i get that Stephen? That's when after the fourth crusade it was a latin basilica that when it had been taken over by venetian raiders and and after the crusaders there but which the historical consequences of that and how that rippled into the actual fall of constantinople i think we talked about in another episode but you did mention something that you, when you were saying Hagia Sophia, you said the Church of the Holy Wisdom. Now, I think a lot of the Westerners, they hear, you know, Hagia Sophia or Saint Sophia, or they think, well, is this church built after, you know, Saint Sophia the Martyr? But it's not. It's actually built, after, it's dedicated to the second person of the Trinity. Stephen, you want to explain that a little bit? Yeah, in terms of, of you know, uh, the logos, right, the, the, the G Christ, Jesus is the, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, right? He is the word. Um, he is, you know, uh, wisdom incarnate, if you will, right? Uh, and so there's a great, um, obviously, the Eastern tradition, you know, starting with the ancient Greeks, you know, influencing Roman philosophy, whatnot, there's a great understanding of, of wisdom and of knowledge and of, but not just like human knowledge, but the, the knowledge of God. Uh, that's 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 really that resonates very much so with with Eastern Christians, uh, and that's that's you know the dedication to this particular basilica um, is is for that, and so it, it actually is quite fascinating on a whole many a, a whole lot of different levels that that this this particular church dedicated to you know the logos to the word to to holy wisdom becomes a mosque right as uh, and Islam is taken over by Islam in the 15th century and then is is has been protected we could say for the last hundred years or so in recognition of how important it is both to muslims and how important it is to christians and now as you mentioned at the top of the the show here how erdogan has has really gone back on all of that and it, it really is um you know a huge slap in the face to to christians and to you know more shall we say moderate or secular muslims as well and it no, would fun. seem that that this would be like a, a sense of ecumenical relationship that a museum and observance of what has occurred there, appreciating it, praying in the spaces, uh, respective of the tradition, whether you're Muslim or you're Christian. And and now I can see that slap in the face. And you, you kind of look throughout history and you look throughout what's happening right now and you see these political movements that are inciting violence and violence is on every side. It's just chaotically spreading through the world. It reminds me of Genesis, God looking upon the world and, and just filled with violence. And, you know, how can you reconcile? And my prayer is just like, God, what do we do? I'm praying for wisdom. You know, Hagia Sophia from the Koine Greek, like you're saying, it means literally holy wisdom. Wisdom is the only thing that is going to guide us from here on. 
And I'm just filled with a cry inside of myself every single day, praying and observing what's happening. And it continues to increase inside of me intensely in my heart. And, you know, when, when Pope Francis, is, as we've said a couple of times already, when he expresses that sentiment of sadness, I don't know what's happening in his heart, but I know what's happening in the mind. And, and it's, it is, it's like a, it's a sadness, but it's, it's this point of like crying out to God, like God, this place is filled with violence and, and we need to do something about it. No, I agree, Father. I mean, exact, you're exactly right. And, and I think you hit on what one thing that we can do, at least, you know, individual Christians, because um, it's a good point. I mean, some people might just feel very isolated, very alone, very, what, what can I personally do? There's not much I can do. Um, people might think. So I think that definitely, you know, prayer, as you mentioned, fasting, you know, I mean, all kinds of, of, of penitential practices, not just for this situation um, in, in uh, you know, in Turkey, obviously, but, but also just all across what we're seeing in our society, you know, in 2020. I mean, it's amazing how, you know, in the, in the last few months, how much has changed and how much of our history, frankly, is under attack. Um, and who we honor in that history is, is under attack as well. Uh, you mentioned, you know, St. Junipero Serra at the beginning of the show and, uh, you know, others that are, that are being, you know, Columbus and what have you are being attacked at this particular moment in time. And, and so the individual Christian might feel, you know, uh, helpless, but there is stuff we can do, first of all, prayer, obviously, but also to just grow in knowledge, right? Grow in our understanding of, of our history, know our history, know the history of the Ottoman Turkish Empire, know what happened you know, in the Byzantine Empire, know what happened um, in our whole church history. And that helps us to be able to at least um, you know, defend our history when it's attacked, but also to, to bring a voice to the conversation and not just allow this to, uh, to go away, right? To have some people say, have it come across their, their feed or whatever on Twitter or Facebook and say, Oh, they turned this into a mosque. Okay, why should I care? Well, you need to care. And if you know you don't, if you don't know why you should care, then then that's the job of others who do care to have that knowledge and be able to give it to them. Yeah. And yeah, I, I got I a think question. We're doing this. Go ahead, please. Yeah, so I, I've got a question in that vein too. You know, I mean, I'm I'm thinking about the the context of the Muslims and and, and their taking the Hagia Sophia. Um, is is there tradition, if you will, uh, the tradition of conquest uh, alone in their in their their you know more radical forms of their faith? Uh, when you reopen it as a mosque, I mean, is is the sentiment or is it is the spiritual aspect of that for them and their joy? Does it come from the particular conquest of? The Christians there, or because I mean, it wasn't their building, so it wasn't their their structure. So, where does their traditional context begin, and and how does that pervade over the centuries? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So, I mean, when you when you look at the history of Islam, right, as as a movement, um, when it when it goes forth out of the Arabian Peninsula in the seventh century, it is it is a movement that is oriented toward imperial conquest. It's a movement that is oriented towards um, bringing the world under the tent of Islam, right? I mean, Muhammad preached this dichotomy of the world where he had, you had those that lived in the house of Islam, you know, those who believed in Allah and followed him as the prophet and those who lived in a house of war, as he called it, that's everybody else. 
And it was the job, it's the job of everyone in the House of Islam to bring those in the House of War into the House of Islam, uh, you know, at times through violent conquest. And that's exactly what you see in the early history of, of Islam, right? And they, uh, the, you know, Islamic armies leave the Arabian Peninsula. As I mentioned, within a generation of, of Muhammad's death, they're at the gates of Constantinople. Uh, you know, the, the Holy Land is conquered by Islamic armies. The, all of Northern Africa, which was Christian, was conquered. You know, army, Islamic armies get into modern day Spain. Uh, they even attack deep into France, um, you know, 120 miles southwest of Paris, where they're stopped. By the so, Franks yeah, in the, in the Charlie early, Martel, yeah, Charles Martel at the, in the Battle of Tours at seven thirty. Dropping the hammer, dropping the hammer. <laughs> so you know they there's there's always this this there has been from the beginning this sense of of conquest and and it you know it's it's not just conquest for the sake of taking land and territory and 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 money it is it is oriented in theology it's oriented in this religious understanding of the two different houses in the world the House of Islam and the House of War, um, and so. When, when you, and then as you move forward, right into time, you have this interaction with Western Europe and, and even the Byzantine Empire with, with Islam during the Crusades. Uh, and then you fast forward to the, you know, really the 14th century into the 15th century when you have the height of the Ottoman Turkish Empire, as we were mentioning, and you have Mehmed II come to Constantinople and conquer the city. And so I think when, you know, to answer the question, Ryan, I think it, it evokes, um, sure, a certain sense of pride in Islamic history. I think that will, that will evoke that with, with, with people today. It'll resonate with people today. Um, and most assuredly, it will re resonate, I think, spiritually uh, in that, you know, once again, you have this, this former Christian structure that has become an Islamic mosque. Uh, now, you know, then became a secular building, now turned back into a mosque. That, that resonates with people and it, and it kind of vindicates, if you will, you know, in their minds, I think, uh, you know, Mohammed and his, his movement and uh, the power and majesty of Allah, uh, yeah, who yeah. is all powerful. And all, and, so how does, so, so the, the, the conquest that this, these, this house of war and, and this conquest, I mean, Father, you could probably talk about this a little bit. You know, God gives us a free will. He wants us to choose him. You know, and, and so you have this sort of conquest nature of religion, if you will, uh, is the Islamic foundations and all of that. Like, how does this play into the will? I mean, I can't imagine like somebody just, you know, kept slaughtering all these people and somehow a light goes on in your head. and You're like, you know what, maybe I should be, you know, Muslim, you know, like, what? <laughs> like I don't understand that. Like you just subject people to, to this relationship with your God. You know, I mean, I'm sure that it goes on in every religion, but I mean, it, it seems like it's, it's more tied around more of a political theological structure, kind of like a union between the two. Is that, is that fair to say? And not necessarily theology as such. No, I think, I think what Steve mentioned too, I mean, it's, it's kind of structured into the theology of, of war as well. And, and, so, you know, and, and power, you know, so we are so focused as, as Catholics, and I think it's beautiful uh, on love. And especially, you know, after Vatican II, maybe a little too much, you know, when, when it's, it became like a marker and crayon catechesis. And it's just, it's, it's just like a warm, fuzzy love. Love is proactive, and, and we do center ourselves on the love of Christ. And that should be the power, the true power that builds bridges. 
not in the sense of proselytizing to take somebody's will away from them. No, but by the invitation of the heart that one is so attracted to truth, beauty, and goodness that the word that is being spoken, the logos, the word that became flesh is a word that rouses the heart of mankind and it responds in voluntas, in, in, that, in that voluntary nature, in that willful nature to respond to the manifest beauty of that relationship. That's love. That is love. But, you know, at this, at this point, in respect to where we find ourselves and, and, you know, we are not called to just lay down and, 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 you know, just kind of give over the, you know, our faith and the heritage of our faith and our sanctuaries and our churches and our statues and what we hold sacred and just say, oh, you know, and just kind of back down. And that's love. That's not love either. That is not love either. Very well said, Padre. And, and to clarify a little bit, you know, Ryan, we talked about the history and the conquest of, of Islam from the beginning of the seventh century onward. It's, it's um, you know, Islam, basically, when they conquered these areas that were Christian, they, they assimilated a lot of what was already there in Christian civilization. Because when you're talking about armies that are leaving the Arabian Peninsula, I mean, before Muhammad, there were a multitude of tribes on the Arabian Peninsula that were not united. That was one of the chief things that he did, politically speaking, at least, and even religiously, was to unite the disparate tribes of, and nomadic tribes of, of Arabia into one particular uh, grouping you know, rooted in religion and, and in his theology. And so when they, you know, when, when these Islamic armies advance through these, these Christian territories, they assimilate, right? They don't have their own necessarily, um, you know, uh, structure in terms of, of civil engineers and things like that, right? To build buildings and, and whatnot. They had, they had other skills, but they didn't have those skills. And so they assimilate all these, these Christian um, uh, edifices and then they turn them into mosques. So a lot, most of the early mosques of, of early Islam are former Christian buildings, right? Or Jewish uh, synagogues as well. Uh, and it takes a long time. And so I, I, I'm going to make sure we don't, we don't uh, leave the impression that, you know, they, they, these Islamic armies came, they conquered everybody, and then they forced everyone to become Muslim. I mean, that did happen to a certain extent, but in many cases, they, they, in most places, they allowed Jews and Christians to continue to live as Jews and Christians with significant uh, restrictions, though, we should add, right? And so, it actually, there was a study done years and years ago, and I think it's seventies, early eighties, that that showed that it was it took about two centuries, two and a half centuries, for the native Christian population in these Islamic occupied territories to to have fifty percent of that Christian population be Muslim. So, so two and a half centuries after the conquest, you still have a significant grouping of Christians in these areas that are persecuted. Uh, that are considered, you know, not very high up in the social order of the Islamic, um, you know, area that they they're in, but they maintained the faith for a long period of time. Others, um, you know, the other half gave in, right, and and did convert because you couldn't advance in society, Islamic society unless you gotcha. um, So you know, that it, it happens gradually over time. I just wanted to make sure we clarify that. Yeah, that's a that's a really great distinction. I mean, it's. Uh, Definitely something that's uh, very valuable to the conversation. Eventually. Yeah, even looking at Constantinople after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, um, uh, when I guess you know there was the Greek-Turkic Wars of 1919 to 1922, somewhere around there, I, I think is pretty accurate. But the population of Constantinople at the time was about 550,000 Muslims and 200,000 uh, Greek Greek Christians. I mean, even until the 1920s, the case was that there was 
not completely uh, Islamicized. Now, because of, of some policies of the Turkish government and some of the, uh, I guess, treaties that happened after World War One, now there's more Turks, uh, Muslim Turks living in Constantinople than there are Greeks living in all of Greece. So the population of Constantinople is about 15 and a half million, which makes it, I think, the third or fourth most populated city in the world. And in all of wow. Greece, there's only about 14 million Greeks. So you can really see the, 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 uh, the arc of the population there. But even into the early 20th century, there was still a notable, sizable presence of Greeks in Constantinople. Yeah, and that's true throughout the, you know, that's true throughout the, that whole region, right? I mean, even in the Holy Land, you see that. I mean, early in the 20th century, there were still sizable Christian populations in, in Bethlehem and Nazareth and places of, in Jerusalem. Egypt, um, whereas, Iran, Iraq. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Iran, Iraq. Even, and, and, but now, you know, as you move into the, you know, or still early part of the 21st century, those Christian populations, through a lot of different reasons, you right. know, immigration, uh, restrictions, other things, have, have dwindled substantially. Mm -hmm. Now, going back to the fall of Constantinople, uh, September 29th, 1453, correct? It was May 29th. You were close. You got May 29th. The, you got May 29th. I'm sorry. May 29th. May 29th. Um, that was the day of the last, the, the evening before was the day of the last divine liturgy to be held in the Hagia Sophia. And all of the, all of the people, now, kind of unknown that maybe about 20 years before this, the emperors of Constantinople had reached out to the West, Pope Eugene, and um, trying to get some help from the West against the advancing Ottoman Empire. And there was actually a council, the Council of Ferrara, uh, Ferrara Florence, I believe. And there was actually a formal reunion between East and West. The, the, um, the papal bull was actually read within the Hagia Sophia, the East and West, had absolutely reunited. There was agreements made, although kind of, if you're looking critically, one-sided from the West because they were the ones in the power and the East needed the West more, but there was agreements on the uh, filioque. There was agreements on the use of leavened bread. There was agreements on papal primacy. There was agreements on the nature of the uh, patriarchs and their, their, their order. Um, and had the West been able to assist the um, the Greeks, there probably there is a good chance that there could have been a true reunion from the Great Schism. Um, but because of the way history went, it never happened. But that last day, May 29, 1453, the, the Latin Catholics, the Orthodox Catholics, they were all inside of the Hagia Sophia, praying the divine liturgy with the emperor, Constantine XI, Paleolgo, Paleologos, that's a hard word for me. It's a lot of L and whatever. Um, but a lot of people think that was the last time the divine liturgy was said there for nearly 600 years. But I actually came across this really cool story that in 1919, during those wars I was talking about after the uh, fall of the Ottoman Empire, um, the Ottoman Empire was kind of under the protectorate of France and England. <clears throat> and Greek, there was a Greek... Um, um, unit of army there. And there's a priest who was a chaplain in the Greek army. His name was Father uh, Eleftherios. And him and four of the members of his attachment got on a rowboat, went onto the golden horn of Constantinople, Istanbul, 
brought with them all the things to say divine liturgy, went into the Hagia Sophia and said publicly the divine liturgy um, in the Hagia Sophia. So that would have actually been the last time. And that was a really bold move because, you know, the city was under occupation of, of the English and they actually went in and celebrated the divine liturgy. So that was actually the last time divine liturgy was celebrated in the Hagia Sophia. Now, that's publicly. I can only imagine there's been times where Orthodox priests have snuck in and found a way to do it. I can only imagine in their hearts it's happened. I know that they've tried. I know it's probably been successful, but that's the only one that I could find that publicly happened is documented. I mean, Father Rich, wouldn't you do the same? Wouldn't you? If, <laughs> well, um, the, the analogy I'm is, sitting. if the Vatican fell, the, the Hagia Sophia falling and being a mosque to the east is what it would be like if the Vatican fell to Islam and was now a mosque. Imagine how you'd feel. Would you not sneak in there and celebrate the mass? Oh, you better believe it. And, and the reason I'm smiling is, you know, when I went through the, uh, the Camino Real and I was walking in the footsteps of St. Junipero Serra and, and I was really developing the devotion and the vision of what that evangelical curve looked like in the church of his day. And, you know, to know Father Jaime was killed in, in proclaiming the gospel in San Diego and to see his work throughout the state was impressive. But a number of his missions fell into captivity as museums. And even that broke my heart, you know. So when I went into those places, I absolutely celebrated the liturgy of the hours. And I prayed. And my desire was to celebrate Eucharist and open up the doors and bring people in. I would have been willing to just do that for the rest of my life and go into these churches and reestablish them, go into these museums and reestablish them as churches. That, that's this huge passion in my heart. So th without a doubt, without a doubt. It was the same thing that, um, that Delta Cross and I were talking about. We were supposed to go to Mexico City and go out to the pyramids. And I wanted to celebrate mass on top of the, one of the pyramids where there were all those uh, human sacrifices and, and pray for atonement and, and um, all of that, you know. So, no, you're, you're, hitting, you're hitting square on the head, dude. That's exactly what's in my heart. Yeah. And I think a lot of priests feel the same way. Absolutely. So what happens now? So what happens to Hagia Sophia? You know, one of the big concerns from a historical sense and a cultural sense is that we know the prohibition of Islam against images. And if, if this building is to be used as a mosque, what about these great uh, images and these, these um, like of Christ and Our Lady above the, the main uh, the main cup of the building i mean what's going to happen to those are those going those absolute treasures of culture and civilization going to be covered up now that's i think one of the main concerns of this now i've read that what they're going to do is use some light technology and and um some like rugs or, or banners or whatever they're they're gonna put up felt banners because they i don't know modern islam i guess save with modern catholicism <laughs> Felt banners are dead. They're dead. <laughs> but they're going to use light technology to essentially block out these images um, of, of Christ while it's in use as a mosque. But when it's not during certain parts of the day, the images will still be available. We'll see, but I just don't know how a mosque is going to be able to maintain having these images in there without them being covered up again or destroyed or whitewashed like they were under Mehmet II. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. I think, um, you know, and my understanding is I think they were, there's, there's some mosaics that, that have been either painted over or were painted over and that, that are not available to be viewed even now. So, I mean, this this was a beautiful building. I mean, you mentioned St. Peter's earlier and we were talking with, with Father about celebrating Mass in these places. I mean, you know, the people who have been to St. Peter's in Rome, you see how beautiful, how how decorative it is. And I mean, all this art from, from you know, the centuries past, it's the same thing in, you know, in, in Hagia Sophia. I mean, it, it was, it was the, the crown jewel of Christendom for centuries, uh, a beautiful place. I mean, you know, just uh, enriched with mosaics and gold and, and precious, uh, you know, stones and relics even that many of the crusaders in the fourth crusade took back to the, uh, to Western Christendom. But still, you know, it, it was a very beautiful uh, place, still is in, in many ways. But you're right. I mean, they're going to have to find ways in which to to cover up or, or hide what is there now if it's going to be actively used. And what does that do even for the tourist aspect of it? I mean, my understanding is that this is the most visited building in all of Turkey. 3.7 um, million tourists a year. Uh, you know, Erdogan's going to have to find a way to replace that income. And that's going to right. bite him in the bite him right where he doesn't intend to be bitten. Yeah, that's that's surprising. So I don't know how he's going to you know, make up that income. And uh, I mean, maybe maybe there's other ways he can come up with that, I guess. But but you know, still, yeah, that is that is significant. I mean, it's it's what does that do? Not just for that building, but just even Turkey as a whole. I mean, there's a lot of Western uh, or a lot of advertisement, I should say, in the Western world. With the share lines or was before the whole pandemic thing. But um you know go to turkey and what so what does that do for for your tourism and, and was this is this like we mentioned at the beginning of the show is this politically expedient for him to do so i mean maybe it was maybe he needs that more um adherent element as you call them um you know in his society to kind of prop up him politically um but I, you have to think there's a lot of people in turkey that themselves aren't really even happy about this move you know all throughout history you know there, there's been moments where the people have been outraged and and you know the fall of the Hagia Sophia and like we're feeling that now like that that this is moving from a, a place of remembrance of 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 devotion of you know like that whole sense of what a museum can evoke within you especially the fact that the location itself you know it was was um you know so rooted in Christendom as you mentioned uh so when Hagia Sophia initially fell what was the outrage like and and what do you recall from from your studies yeah well there was i mean there was you know consternation in the west i mean you know i think ryan mentioned it a little bit earlier in in the conversation of you know there was this movement towards reunification between the eastern and western halves of the church you know right before this event 20 years or so 15 years or so before the fall of constantinople um, and, and a lot of that was from the political perspective and military perspective kind of done in order to try to elicit Western aid. Um, but, you know, you're, once you get to the middle part of the 15th century, 16th century, you're, you have Western Christendom, the rulers of Western Christendom are, are more focused on their own internal matters uh, than they are on any kind of, you know, uh, pan-Christian or Christendom-wide effort. So, as, whereas before, the popes could motivate Christian rulers in the, the 11th, 12th, and 13th century to go on crusade to try to liberate these ancient Christian territories. When you get to the time of the 16th century, uh, or the 15th century rather, that's really not the case anymore. So there were all three popes after the fall of Constantinople did call for a crusade 
uh, to be, um, you know, called forth and to have Western Knights go and, and liberate the city. Um, even one, Pius II, uh, in you know, the middle part of the 15th century, he kept asking and asking, made it the focal point of his entire pontificate, and no one from the Western uh, powers would respond. And so at the very end, he decided, you know what, I'm going to take the cross myself. So you have the, this aged, you know, 70, 80-year-old pope at the time taking the cross and becoming a crusader himself and saying, I'm going to leave Rome and marshal an army and try to go uh, and liberate Constantinople. And his thought was that if I do this, it will motivate the rest of these Western rulers to see, you know, this, this ailing you know, old pope trying to go and, and, and liberate the city that, that they would man up in essence and, and follow him. Um, sadly, that didn't work. And, and as the Crusade army gathered in the south of Italy to, to launch, uh, disease broke out in camp. The, uh, Pius II himself died of the plague. And so the Crusade plans just kind of ended. Uh, and there really, after that, there really was no serious effort uh, by Christendom to try to liberate the city, partly because from Constantinople, the Ottomans then began a series of incursions and invasions into what we call Eastern Europe, the Balkan states of Europe, you know, Hungary and, and Bulgaria and those areas. Uh, and so Christendom is fighting kind of on its own territory now just to preserve itself uh, from the Ottoman Turkish war. Yeah, they and made then we the started really Vienna. looking west. I think that's when, that's when, you know, we started looking to the Americas and, you know, 1492 rolls around and all the movements leading up to that. And then certainly the 16th century and all the things that we've seen and then and then onward you know the church started investing in in other places um but it, you know like shiel was saying before the east really needed the west and when we're considering the question of you know what do we need now what do we need to do because the outrage is real and the outrage is building what what do we need to do now you know we we all need each other you know, the East needs the West, the West needs the East, and we need every type of denomination out there to realize that our Christian faith is under attack by secularization, by people who want to conquest, you know, and, and, and take over these sacred spaces and, and to destroy these sacred spaces. And that's, that's just so concerning for me. And I hope that more and more people will begin the process of of conversing about it. And, and I know I, I see a lot of it online. Um, I don't see a lot of productive things online, but um, we need to really pray to cry out to God and to really see that we need to depend on one another and we can't just roll over. We've got to come up with a plan. Yeah, Padre, you're, you're absolutely right that when the East needed the West so many times throughout history, the West failed it. It did. Um, Time and time again, there's so many times that the Crusades have been calls where, I mean, all four, four of the five patriarchs fell to Islam and the West didn't ever do enough or weren't in the position to do enough. Um, but I would say that if the patriarch of Moscow and Pope Francis don't use this as an opportunity for greater unity, greater cooperation, and then also that the, the patriarch of Constantinople and the patriarch of Moscow don't use this as an example, as a means for reconciliation after their recent schism, that, that's a big missed opportunity. And where did Father Rich go? Father Rich. There you go. There's a missed like, opportunity right there. Yeah, yeah Father Rich <laughs> said about ecumenism and bolted out the door. 
Well, I, I, I was just going to say, like, my, um, my understanding of ecumenism, at least um, in, in the United States and the fractures of, of evangelical Protestant, you know, like all, all the different, you know, Episcopal Church and, the, you know, the Anglicans. Um, oh, look at this. He's, he's setting up my battery. Oh. I, 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 I told him I was down to 15% on my battery. Father Rich, did you just run all the way from Florida to Houston? That was fast. I'm very fast. That was amazing, Padre. You're like Padre Pia with bilocation. Oh gosh. thank you. He's he's bilocated from the kitchen. All right, I'm back to Florida. All right. Um well I I was just saying that, you know, growing up and even before I was born. Uh, there was a lot of Christian fracturing, you know, and I think uh, just spiritually speaking, coming together and, and protecting e- each other, you know, and, and our faith, you know, I've got you know a lot of Baptist friends, evangelical friends, um, just the awareness of these things isn't even really present to them. Uh, there's a lot of awareness of what's going on in our country and all these other things. Um, you know, the, the great loss of faith with, a lot of young kids but you know i see i see something there to capitalize from spiritually where we could all come together pray and support each other in ways that have never occurred before and i'm i'm just speaking it in terms of the west in terms of you know the the americas if you will not not necessarily uh you know the east and the west as you know as we're we're speaking of even though that is a a very big deal but uh, you you do see through this anvil right that that we are becoming uh closer uh and obviously needs to to come come in a little bit more but i do see that kind of trend uh a little bit you know as a 45 year old you know yeah no i think that's right i mean it's it's uh you know to comment just a few um a little bit on some of those points i mean I think that, uh, you know, it's hard for, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not one myself, obviously a modern day Protestant, but I think it's hard as a, a Protestant in the United States in particular to even understand and know why this might be a particularly important situation. Um, Cause you know, within the Protestant community, there's a lot of focus on Jerusalem, obviously for obvious reasons, right? The city of our Lord and, and uh, you know, his passion, death and resurrection, but, but, not so much of an emphasis, I think, on, on understanding the importance of Constantinople, right? Or, or I think I get the sense maybe that many Protestants kind of see that as, well, you know, it's an East-West thing, it's a Catholic Orthodox thing, it doesn't really impact me, but, but Ryan, I mean, you hit, on, you hit it right on the, on the head, I think, it, that, that there needs to be a greater awareness and understanding that this is important. This is, this is and as Father pointed out, I mean, this is, this is a, a situation where we need to come together, where we need to understand as Christians that this is a larger issue than, um, you know, so-called denominations or, or, you know, groupings of Christians into different categories. I mean, this is a, this is a pan-Christian uh, issue that, that needs to be looked at and, and focused on, um, you know, religiously, not just from a political perspective, but, but religiously. These, these sacred spaces are under attack, and, and um, we can only, you know, uh, kind of combat that, if you will, together, because separately it's just not going to work. Now, awesome, Steve. Now, Steve, two things before we go. I would like for you to tell everyone where they could find some of your books, some of the things that 
uh, that you've written so that people can, like you said, learn more about history and why these things are important. And then, Steve, when you're done with that, Father, I got something for you as well. Yeah, great. Thanks for the opportunity to do that. So, what about me, Shield? What yeah. about me? Do I get nothing? Am I chopped liver? Do, do you, you, you got a power cord. Is that what you're giving me? <laughs> no. That's my power cord, and Ryan's not having it. He already took like 10 of them. He is a renowned and known thief of power cords. Yeah. Yes, he is. Uh-huh. Well, at least Father's right there and go to confession, so that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Steve, please tell us about some of your books and where people can find them. Uh, sure. So I do write fairly regularly for Catholic Answers for their blog. So people can go onto Catholic.com and Catholic Answers and see some of my writings there. I usually I do one once a month for them. Um, but I had multiple books come out. Most recently, uh, a book called Timeless, which is a history of the Catholic Church. Uh, it was published by Our Sunday Visitor. So you can find that uh, from their website or on Amazon. And I do have my own website. It's just my name, stevewidenkopf.com, one word. Uh, and I post my books and articles and things to all up on that as well. So and if anyone's interested in taking any online courses, I am teaching church history this coming fall semester, hopefully online through the Christendom Graduate School. So if people just go to christendom.edu and just search for Chris for graduate school, we'll have more information about that as the summer rolls along. But you can also yeah, find I'll, courses and work there. And I'll put links to all of those below here. And uh those are some pretty cool things. The online courses and Steve's books are great. I definitely recommend them. And, you know, Padre, it was your birthday. You missed last week. I do have a great birthday present for you, but I can't give it to you until we're in person. And it's going to be epic. And I can't wait. Um, <laughs> now, but before we go, Padre, I, I would hope maybe you would give us a little prayer that we can all pray. Um, maybe just lead us a little bit of prayer for some reconciliation and for, I guess, the, the, I don't know, the pain and the reparation for the desecration of the Hagia Sophia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we cry out to you. And from the very depths of our sadness and our grief, and most especially our need, we cry out to you over the Hagia Sophia, And we pray for holy wisdom. We pray for holy wisdom to be given to your church and all of its members. We pray that your loving mercy may reconcile hearts. To reconcile all of our denominations, east and west. To unite our hearts that we may have one voice rooted in your word, made flesh. That we may continue to worship your son to give him our lives and to fly the banners of faith, hope, and love, to fly them courageously and boldly. We ask that you send your spirit into the church to renew us in the sacred gifts that you have given her. We ask that you renew the passion and the zeal to every man, woman, and child in our faith. We ask that you protect the mystical body that is your church and send us the sacred sevenfold gifts of your Holy Spirit, especially wisdom, knowledge, and understanding and counsel, these intellectual gifts, Father, that we may be guided by them, influenced by your direction and your will. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down upon you and remain with you forever.
Amen. And I have to say, uh, I am just so grateful to both of you, Ryan Shield and to Steve. Both of you have such great uh, recollection of history and your diligent study and your effort. Um, we need to have contact with our history. We need to grow in greater devotion. So an encouragement to all, all of our viewers and all of our followers, uh, you know, definitely check out Steve's website, check out his books and uh, continue to learn about our faith uh, historically, but also the depths that we have in the, in the scriptures and our fellowship. So we thank you for journeying with us to the Catholic Talk Show. It's great to be back after vacation. And I look forward to that gift, Shield. But the gift of our communion that we have through this show is, is one of the greatest gifts of my life. So may God bless each of you, and we'll see you next week.